Good morning, gardeners. I am Louisa Pringle Cameron, and today's episode of the Charleston Gardener is all about some of the wildlife we have experienced in the city of Charleston, South Carolina. remember much wildlife in our backyard or neighborhood when I was a child growing up a block from East Bay Street. We all had family dogs. We had a treehouse in the enormous ancient pittosporum that grew over, shaded, and basically ruined our lawn. And we, a pack of neighborhood children of all ages, rode our bicycles through the alleys, backyards, driveways, and smaller streets, making plenty of noise. Often on weekends and in the summer, we were racing down the sidewalks to the Battery Park or we roamed the neighborhoods looking for interesting places to play. We played hopscotch on the sidewalks, too, and practiced roller skating if the street were quiet. Other than our beloved dogs and a few cats, most animals didn't have a chance, but they got plenty of warning. That all changed when I grew up, married a Charleston man, and moved to what my family thought was an exciting but dubious location above Queen Street. It's still a bit of an edgy neighborhood, and oh, how we love having an old house that always needs some sort of work, but sits on between one-third and one-half of an acre. I never dreamed that we would have the luxury of enough space to always keep us busy in a garden. The city of Charleston used to have an excellent rodent control program and would drop off containers of rodenticide. We called them more than once. Our first cat was a lovely, gentle orange tabby afraid of everything, including the huge Norway wharf and roof rats that roamed the city and lurked in the storm drains. We have spotted them humping across the lawn and scurrying along the telephone lines to reach the ripe Japanese plums growing up through the wires next door. One summer, we left town for a couple of weeks with the cat and found a nasty mess in the dining room where rats had feasted in the sugar bowl naively left on the sideboard. My husband and a competent friend made short work of getting rid of them by screening areas where they could get in and by using huge traps with twine attached for easy removal. There were some disgusting incidents, but the bat invasion won the prize. The attic is not finished. It's a large space with tall rafters and a few plywood panels for safety when walking around. There's plain pink insulation, an ancient ladder to a trap in the roof, a bare light bulb, and a heating and cooling unit for the third floor rooms below. A fan circulates air in the summer. There were dozens of places where bats could enter, and before long, a colony had established itself in one corner. The stench is vile and unmistakable. Professionals had to be called in, but it still smelled awful, and my clever husband sacrificed a small vacuum cleaner to finally get rid of everything left that was soiled. We had another bat incident about the time our son was seven or eight. He and a friend were playing outside, and husband Price was polishing the brass lion head knocker on the front door, which could be seen from the street. The boys had all sorts of trucks and other things, including a realistic-looking black plastic bat that they had been using to tease Mom and other girls. 
So when Price spied the toys at the base of the door, crumpled up against the door frame, he reached down to pick it up and throw it back at the boys who were nearby. Next thing he knew, the toy bared its teeth, hissed, and struck out, nicking my husband on the top of his luckily gloved hand. The bat did not fly away. Worried about endemic rabies, we used a pair of tongs to pick up the live bat and stuff it into a plastic container, which I put in a paper bag in the refrigerator, per instructions from the County Health Department emergency hotline. Of course, it was the weekend, so I heard the poor creature squeak for at least a day every time I opened the refrigerator door. Unnerving. I dropped it off at the health department as soon as possible, and thank goodness the rabies test came back negative. I can't even talk about squirrels. These rodents hang from the edge of the roof and chew into the cornice in order to get into the attic and the walls and start nests. Their nests get infested with fleas, so squirrels move them often. Squirrels cause house fires by eating the insulation on wiring, which we have already had to replace before we discovered where they were entering at a corner of the roof. One of the more unusual mammals hanging around our house was an opossum. Coming in late from a call to sew up a patient at the emergency room, Price saw the largest rat he had ever seen in his life eating the dry cat food at the top of the back steps. By the time my husband had gotten a shovel from the shed to at least defend himself, Mr. Possum was running down the steps headed for a way out of the garden. The last time I saw him, he was confidently trotting along the sidewalk towards the two graveyards across the street, his long nails making a distinctive click-click-click sound. Years later, we caught a baby possum called a joey in a -a have-a-heart trap, and a cheerful young man from the city came and took him away. We have only had those two incidents with opossums, but have had numerous encounters with raccoons, which relish turning over the grass edges of our tiny natural pond, looking for grubs and other insects. We trapped a few to turn loose in wooded areas, but there was often evidence of plenty of them. Early one very cold evening, I stepped outside onto our downstairs covered porch with the intention of bringing our two cats inside for the night. There was no need to turn on a light. I really just had to call for the cats and they would come to the door. Ling Ling, the Siamese, was curled up on top of the bench against the brick wall. As I reached down to pick her up, a pair of ears and part of a head popped out from underneath the bench where there was a small bowl of dry kibble. Hi there, kitty, I said to the strange-looking enormous cat. Oh dear, are you cold too? Then the striped-tailed kitty stood on its hind legs and touched noses with Ling Ling. It was a raccoon. Now, I know for a fact that raccoons will fight with and tear up a cat, so I scooped up my pet, grabbed a broom, and batted the invader out through the cat door at the end of the porch. As it turned out, the raccoon had probably grown up with Ling Ling, and they were friends. There are five types of poisonous snakes in our area. Two rattlers, the nasty-tempered cottonmouth or water moccasin, the copperhead, and the seldom-seen coral snake. The only poisonous type we've seen in town was dead in the street and probably fell out of a truck loaded with pine straw. I remember a hullabaloo at one of the local nurseries when staff loading pine straw for a customer discovered a huge copperhead. I've had a small grass snake run up my arm as I was reaching down into a holly fern to debris dead fronds, and have had a garter snake slither across my garden boot. I've also seen plenty of rat snakes as well as a glass snake. 
There were so many rat snake sightings in the neighborhood one summer that there must have been a huge nest of them. Heaven knows that there is plenty for them to eat, and the lovely toads I carefully introduced have all disappeared. Birds are our favorite wildlife. In addition to the robins, red-winged blackbirds, summertime hummingbirds, and so many other species that fly across our space, we have annual nesters in the garden. Generations of blue jays, mockingbirds, cardinals, chimney swifts, sparrows, morning doves, finches, and hawks live in close proximity. The baby blue jays used to enjoy swooping through the brick arch supporting our back steps. There was a bowl of cat food under the arch, and the game was to grab a snack on the way through. It was fun to watch. There's a pair of old-fashioned, highly productive fig trees hugging the porch along its western exposure. These figs were small ones that sprouted underneath my mother's huge old tree and have thrived in the sweet soil that gets lime from the mortar that leaches out from the brick pillar supports. I had netted the figs from the birds due to the promise of a heavy harvest. One morning as I was coming down the steps, I was suddenly stopped by the sight of a female cardinal at the base of a net. She carefully lifted the net with her beak, shimmied underneath it, and, using her talons and her beak, climbed the short trunk of the tree and started feasting on the fruit. I removed the nets. These same nets, however, are now on the tomato plants we have scattered in sunny spots throughout the garden. It's late June, and the birds have just discovered that there are a few ripe fruits among all the green. The only bird that is colorblind is the owl, so our songbirds can actually pick out the yellow, orange, and red fruits. I am tempted to hang some bright red Christmas balls of different sizes in among the tomatoes and see if this deters them from repeatedly pecking through the nets. Our mockingbirds, which have raised many generations of fledglings in our garden, have been waging war with our cats for years. They used to ambush both pets when we had a pair of them along the driveway, which was a most amusing sight. Just across the street from the driveway lie two graveyards, full of mice and other fascinating things to chase and watch. So the cats got frustrated trying to make their way over there. Our champion Mauser, a handsome black and white alley cat named Ruru, did manage to bring live mice back, much to my chagrin. Ruru and Ling Ling used to sit on our pedestrian gate posts, one cat on each post, on weekday mornings, and wait for the schoolchildren passing by to give them a quick pet. The alley cat was not shy, and knowing just when it was snack time or lunch time, would mosey on over to the school next door and beg for treats. The children loved him. He also used to lie on the bricks at the bottom of the gate and enjoy the breeze that wafted underneath. There was one mockingbird who tortured him repeatedly while he was trying to nap. I had to shoo it away many a time. The mockingbirds have their own predators. For decades, there have been hawks that nest in the neighborhood and keep watch from the weather vane atop the Lutheran church steeple. Our family watched with fascination as one of them brought down a mockingbird in the clear sky above our lawn and ate it on the spot. Just the other day, Price and I watched a small bird and a hawk dancing a dangerous game in that same clear area over our lawn. The hawk just could not maneuver swiftly enough to nab the little bird and was soon driven away. Just outside our bedroom window, we have seen a hawk steadfastly ignoring the jays, redbirds, and others dodging in and out, daring to peck and harass the hawk. 
I do not know the species of that particular bird of prey, as I'm not a birder, but just after Hurricane Hugo in 1989, we saw a traumatized cooper's hawk resting on a low sill at the Unitarian Church down the street. We were close enough for positive identification and gave the poor creature a wide berth. Beautiful as they are, herons are unwelcome predators in our garden. We once had a small natural pond with a gentle waterfall spilling from a low range of stones at one end. I just loved the koi and goldfish and minnows and the one turtle that populated it. The few water lilies we anchored in baskets bloomed regularly, and a gorgeous black and white koi made quite a picture when he swam among them. This fish grew to about 10 inches, and when I reached down and vigorously swished the surface water, it would confidently make its way to the edge for a koi treat. Eventually, I could stroke his head, and he would reward me by sucking on my finger. Then I would immediately reward him by giving him a grub or a worm or any other plump prize I had just found. Early one morning as I was headed downstairs for a cup of coffee, I paused on the landing to look out of the arched window overlooking the length of the garden. To my horror, the heron that had been roosting in one of a pair of American hollies near the pond was standing on the lawn with Big Boy, my black and white koi, in his beak. Flying outside in my nightgown, I halted several feet away. That bird stood at least three feet high and had a wicked beak. It just eyed me and gobbled my pet fish. To add insult to murder, the heron would not leave the garden. It not only ate most of the fish, but punctured holes in the rubber pond lining. We replaced the lining and the heron punctured it again. Eventually, we gave up on the pond and the hollies are gone. One of them was a storm victim and the other was felled when we reconfigured the entire garden. These are just a few of the many birds with which we are familiar. Herbert Sass, a well-known Charleston ornithologist, wrote an article in 1911 in which he talked about birds he had seen from the house on Legree Street owned by his family for 100 years. Quote, Actually in and directly above this garden, I have seen 114 different species of birds, he wrote. If, as is perfectly fair, he continues, I include those that I have seen from the window of the house, the number of species is 132, more than one-third of the total number to be found in the entire state of South Carolina. Charleston rarely gets hard freezes for more than a day or two, but when we did have one that lasted five days and killed so very many plants, Price called me to come see the handsome woodcock in the Aspidistra at the end of the garden. We do not put out bird seed for our songbirds, as that would only encourage squirrels, and heaven forbid seagulls or pigeons. But we do have plenty of plants with seeds for them, and of course there are the figs and the tomatoes. There's an elementary school next door that is integrated into the neighborhood. The original school built a new classroom building and a gym, but the current school, which bought the property, has expanded by acquiring several old buildings, then restoring and maintaining them for more classrooms and for administrative offices and other useful spaces. They did construct one more new building that fits in nicely. There is a very small vegetable garden and a beehive for honeybees, which we very much enjoy having close by. One science project involved the metamorphosis of the monarch butterfly through all four stages, egg, larva, pupa, and adult. 
To celebrate the hatching of 100 adults, there was a party in the garden with balloons and much cheering. To our delight, the orange cloud flew up and over the wall to our flower beds, where we have subsequently planted Asclepius, the butterfly weed, to encourage their return. The plant of the week is a summer favorite everywhere, the hydrangea. One of the easiest shrubs to propagate and to grow, just give this beauty a shady or semi-shady spot and plenty of water. Iconic blue, but also pink, white, purple, and green blossoms light up the garden and make lovely bouquets. There are two native hydrangeas, the oak leaf, which has a white pendulous flower cluster, and the smooth hydrangea, which also has white flowers. Introduced from Japan in the 1700s, hydrangeas macrophylla and serrata are two of the showstoppers we see everywhere these days. Hydrangea sargentiana, known for its delicate heads, originated in China. The most asked question about hydrangeas is when to prune them, and one would be wise upon purchase or acquisition to inquire and to write down the best time. In general, prune plants after they bloom. Some hydrangeas only bloom on old wood, so try to check which types you have, as there is a mind-boggling variety of them. There are many books on hydrangeas, and the Internet is a superb source of information. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of The Charleston Gardener, and many thanks to my producer, Daniel Patrick, without whom this program would not be possible. If you enjoyed this new gardening podcast, please go to www.gocharlestongardener.com to subscribe for free and to find more information. And remember, as Benjamin Disraeli said, how fair is a garden amid the trials and passions of existence. (laughs) 